This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath here. Uh, we're talking about being anxious. Who hasn't been anxious in their life? But anxiety is the number one mental illness in this country. And joining me on the line to talk about anxiety and what that looks like and how different it is in men in particular is Alistair Moose. He is all over, way out there in British Columbia, all over British Columbia, uh, with offices and or courses in on anger management on the North Shore of British Columbia of uh, Vancouver and Richmond and Surrey and uh, Burnaby, and he's now on the line with me. Hello, Alistair. Hello, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Thanks for joining me tonight. Happy to be here. Thanks. All right. So we're talking about anxiety, which I know in the amazing anger management courses that you offer all over the place. And did I? Hopefully, I got the cities correct. Close enough. Okay, good. And you do online as yeah. well? Yep, yeah, all, all over the world. Excellent. Uh, because anxiety is pervasive uh, uh, all over the world. It's an existential issue. Um, and so tonight I asked you to come in and talk about um, what anxiety looks like in men. Women typically are nervous or they worry, but is it different in men? Well... Pretty much all of the men that come our way uh, have anxiety. Most of them haven't had any experience talking about it. I think the biggest difference is that women are often socialized to be able to have conversations about these things, but men grow up learning to be cool and have it together and pretend as if everything's totally fine. So men are much more reluctant to actually speak out loud about these things and the more anxiety hangs out uh, in the shadows, so to speak, the, the more power it has over them. And often it turns into either addictions or, uh, you know, such as alcohol or even gambling or things like that or um, withdrawal. And, and another symptom that I see a lot in my clinical practice, and I often have to say uh, to couples, whether it's the man or the woman, um, nobody wants to have sex with an angry person. And so men aren't, ta- aren't taught to speak out loud about anxiety, but it may mm-hmm. manifest as an explosion of anger. Is that correct? Absolutely. And, and anxiety is so much about paying attention to what we have no control over. And often what's led somebody to us is an actual explosion. They blew up. And the day that they blew up, they probably hadn't been sleeping well, hadn't been taking very good care of themselves, and there had been a bunch of unresolved issues that had built up over time, and then everything happened all at once. And even though what started the argument was something about toilet paper, it was about a lot more than that. But often it's about something really simple, but there's there's so many different things going on in the person's head as their heart rate goes up and their blood pressure goes up and their thoughts start speeding and they start thinking about all these things and even making things up and, you know, like jealousy and things like that. And then they act irrationally. And definitely there's a a history of of anxiety behind that, typically. And and this can lead to job loss for some men, I would imagine. (laughs) And we get quite a few guys sent to us from, but, you know, from all across the board. From, you know, doctors and nurses and teachers to uh, construction workers and longshoremen and 
um, even uh, music teachers and librarians. Anxiety doesn't discriminate. I, I get that. Um, but yeah. and, and denial is a big drug. And so when you see these persistent problems in people, they may be using or abusing alcohol. They may go from one job to the next because they've lost the job because they blasted somebody. Um, and they're, you know, having difficulties in their relationships, but they actually have a hard time taking a look at themselves and saying, I am responsible for having lost my job. How do men deal with that? Well, and, and that's exactly what they're doing is they're focusing on other people and what other people are thinking of them or what other people may or may not do. And so if they come into one of our groups or they come in and talk, and, uh, and they'll, which tends to mean that they have some openness 99% of the time, and they're actually able to look at it, then things start to change for them. And they come into the second session of the group or the next individual session, and they say, wow, things have actually improved because we've talked to them about what happens in our physiology and what happens in our thoughts, and they get this impression that, oh, you mean I'm not the only one who thinks like that or feels like that? This is actually like I'm not really a monster. There's not something terribly wrong with me. And they notice it in themselves, and then they start noticing it in others as well. And all of a sudden, the world isn't so unsafe, because when the anxiety really gets going, it feels very unsafe, and it feels unsafe in their body. And then if they escalate enough, then they start reacting as if there's, they're in fight or flight, or there's a, you know, real physical danger, even when there isn't any physical danger. So their you know, expression ends up being pretty dramatic. You mentioned something about they worry about what other people think. I think a lot of people do that in society today, especially with social media and Instagram and this mm-hmm. perfection, this perfectionistic life we put on um, on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. So there is it affirmation that they need validation. They don't feel good enough. What is that about worrying about what other people think? Well, often they grew up uh, around a lot of negativity, around a lot of criticism, and it wasn't safe. And so they paid attention to what was going on and the other people around them, but it was unpredictable. So it, it, but, but the danger was there. And so this stays in them as long as they don't, address it as long as they don't end up doing some work with somebody to help them acknowledge what goes on in their body and help them heal from that. But because they grew up being men and they, they won't talk to anybody, anybody about it, then this, this stays in them and then something small happens and their response or, or reaction is completely disproportionate to the event because they're, they're holding all this stuff that's been with them. I, sometimes it can go back generations you, you certainly see the anxiety show up in, in somebody exactly the same way from parent to child. I often that, say that, anxiety is contagious. Would you agree with that? It is, it, it is learned in, 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 my, in my experience. My, my son was uh, playing in the provincial finals in soccer a number of years ago. And one of his buddies was on the sidelines. And I said, hey, what, what's going on? He said, oh, he's got a stomachache. And one of the things that anxiety often does is it shows up in our, in our belly mm-hmm. as a stomach ache, as pain. And his stomach was hurting so much that he couldn't go out and play. 
Wow. And I went and I had a short conversation with him. I did a breathing exercise with him that I knew would bring his heart rate down. And as soon as his heart rate came down enough so that he was getting out of fight or flight, his stomach completely went away. And he went out and played. Wow. Uh, they lost the game. But he did play, so that was that was good. And then I learned, oh, yeah, his mother has the exact same thing in her stomach. Wow. And so you can see how it goes down. But then, you know, then they never talk to me about it again. Right. You know, there's, right? there's this shame around right. it. Right, exactly. Yes. And there's other physical symptoms that anxiety uh, may manifest as as well. Many. Like, many. Like headaches. Are they a common one? Uh, headaches uh, in the forehead, in the temples. People sometimes call them stress headaches. Often that has to do with overwhelm mm-hmm. and thinking about all the different things that are going on. And again, with social media, there's so many things that people have in their head. And it's just, it's just a busier life uh, at this time in history, or so it seems to me. Anyway. Right. right. Alistair, you're awesome. Um, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, angerman.ca. They can always follow my Instagram feed, uh, Moose Anger Management, and uh, 604-723-5134. Thank you so much, Alistair Moose, Moose Anger Management, and I am Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Thank you, Alistair. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Lots to talk about on the show tonight, but uh, nothing more important than your happiness. Joining me in the studio is the creator of the Happiness Jar Lifestyle, Jen Smart, thanks so much for joining me to yeah, talk about thank happiness. Thank you, Maureen. I'm so excited. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Uh, happiness, you know, it's uh, it's not easy for a lot of people. In fact, I was walking on a seawall recently, and, you know, there aren't that many people, but, you know, sometimes people, they don't even look at you, they don't even smile, they don't even say hello. You know, other times people are, and you wonder... Is it about happiness? And what is happiness all about anyway? Yeah. Um, happiness is a sense of like true well-being, joy, and satisfaction. It's when each and every moment is felt and enjoyed. And this will give you true inner happiness and a solid foundation of it. And so I love your story as to why you started the Happiness Jar lifestyle. And we're actually going to give out a happiness Jar. Yes, we are. To a, a lucky, lucky winner. So here's the number, one 399 9898 And you have to talk to me. You can call Dwayne, but you got to call me. <laughs> talk to me if you want to win this. Now, ideally, I think it would be great if, you, if there was somebody in your life that you wished or hoped was a little bit happier. So explain to me how the happiness jar works. And we're going to take the fifth caller on the happiness jar. Oh, wow. Yeah, so how does caller. the happiness jar work? <laughs> work. Well, the happiness jar lifestyle, it's all about inner happiness. Mm-hmm. You know, I've noticed a lot of people are forgetting to focus on your happiness. Focusing on your happiness is the key, mm-hmm. really. Um, the happiness jar motivates you to pay attention to what makes you happy during your day. So you can have fun visually watching your happiness grow with each pearl you put in your jar. Okay, so let's, you brought some into the studio, right? <clears throat> I did. 
uh, put this on Instagram. Can I just take a look at it? So it's a jar. Mm -hmm. This one has some, um, looks like Viagra pills to me. That's going to make them happy. (laughs) 1-877-399-9898 if you want a little more happiness in your life. So these are the the little balls. Yeah, those are called, they're happiness pearls. Pearls, I'm sorry. So basically... there's my happiness pearls. So all the things that I do for myself, all the tasks I do, you know, we all have a lot of things to do in a day. So instead of taking it for granted, mm-hmm. you put a pearl in and you start appreciating yourself for all the things that you do. It really turns things around in your life. Okay. Like, um, getting up and making yourself a coffee, um, having a great shower, getting ready for work. Get those good feelings going before you start your day. It's really important. So recognize the gift of of the first breath in the morning. I'm alive. Yeah. And so I got up and I started breathing. I mean, sometimes well, we have to bring it back to really simple yeah. things, yeah. right? When you bring it back to the small things, um, you know, it just creates more happiness in your life. It, okay. So every time you do something for yourself that you're, I gather, that you're able to do or... Like, like make yourself a cup of coffee or... Yeah, or you just one. go to the smallest little things. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of small wins in our life. We do. We, we do. do. So it's just all about celebrating the little wins. Start small. Create your foundation of happiness. So once you've done something for yourself, so you've gotten up, you've taken a shower, you've gotten some coffee, you've gotten yourself dressed, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> you put three... <laughs> Pearls? Yeah, you put in a pearl for each one. Okay. So um, it even works if you do not like doing something. Like for a while there, um, when I was going through a depressed time, Mm -hmm. I didn't like making my bed. I didn't actually like doing anything. Mm -hmm. But it actually, um, what it does is it connects a new energy. So your energy is always where you last left it. So if you're feeling depressed, you're not going to feel good doing it. Um, so what the happiness jar did was it attached a good feeling because I'm putting some appreciation in the jar for myself, mm-hmm. creating, um, you know, a heartfelt feeling, a happy feeling. So okay. it works really well that way too. Great. So you mentioned, um, that you felt a bit depressed. Um, and, and so what I loved about this company is why you started it. So tell me a little bit about that. Um, yeah, we started this, um, lifestyle was born when my girlfriend and I were going through, um, a really upsetting time. We were going through a breakup and, um, yeah, we were grieving. Um, there was many tears, um, there was many talks and we were realizing that, our past was basically being magnified by these breakups and realizing that we had both lost sight of our own inner happiness. So we came up with this idea. It came out of a meme and we decided to build our own happiness. So off to the store we went and our frowns just turned upside down. Um, we started this right away and, um, yeah, it just got us out of a really hard time because this jar gets you to focus on what makes you happy. So that's the gift of it. Exactly. And sometimes we don't realize 
what makes us happy and that and and it's a little bit tied to gratitude is it not yeah appreciation and gratitude so basically um you know happiness love appreciation gratitude these are emotions at the top of the emotional scale this is where we all need to be hanging out a little bit more every day. Mm -hmm. This jar really helps you do that. Mm -hmm. Um, We're in control of 40% of our happiness, meaning we can increase our happiness ourselves opposed to looking for things outside ourselves like other people or waiting to go on that trip. Um, When I started appreciating myself, I didn't look for appreciation from other people anymore. It was just a bonus. Like, I was looking internally at me. If I'm not appreciating myself, um, you know, this jar comes with white pearls and colored pearls. So the colored pearls are for shared experiences that you have with other people. Um, All about connection, whether it's a smile, smiling at a stranger, um, you know, saying thank you, not just the words, but feeling appreciation like thank you for that or you just made my day or a compliment um, given or received. That's when you put like a colored pearl in, all the little things. Right. It it seems it's a bit like biofeedback to me. So you have your two different types of pearls, as I understand, the white ones, the white pearls and then the gorgeous Tiffany blue color pearls um, that are for the shared experiences. So if you go out for dinner with somebody, you might enjoy that time and you might put a shared happiness pearl yeah. in yes. your jar, in yeah. your happiness jar. Yeah. And then does it work that later on you look at your jar and you think, wow, I have like 30 pearls in there. Look at my life. And yeah. so could it turn somebody who didn't feel worthy into somebody who valued themselves and had found some self-worth? Yeah, it really makes you recognize that. Um I know when um, I first started it and I was depressed, it's pretty hard not to smile at a happiness jar. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like, if you say happiness, it's pretty hard not to smile. So you're looking at your happiness jar when you wake up in the morning and it automatically gets you, gets your brain trained to start this process every day. Right. Um, I just wanted to ask you... um, You mentioned depressed, and I want to say, um, I just don't want people to feel that this may be a treatment if they've been prescribed an antidepressant. And we all often throw around the term depressed, but when we mean down. And were you clinically depressed, or were you, um, was it real depression? Um, Basically... uh Does that does that make sense? Or yeah, I mean, we and there's heartbreak. You know, heartbreak is real, and people yeah. feel pain. And we're going to talk about that later on in the show. Yeah, um, I would say I was uh, clinically depressed, but I didn't okay. go to a doctor. I've had depression before when okay. I was younger, and mm-hmm. I did get myself out of it. Mm-hmm. So um, that's why happiness has always been like a passion for me. Yes, my whole life, I've wanted to come up with something like this to make it easier for people to be happier in their lives um, because of the fact that I know that um, what you focus on um, gets stronger within you. So it's like, it's like happiness is like a muscle. You got to exercise it every day. And like, 
with this jar, it just makes it so easy. It's it's one of the, and they, they recommend exercise certainly uh, for a treatment for depression or one of the treatments. Yeah. And also now we have the happiness jar. And I have Catherine on the line from Surrey, British Columbia. Hello, Catherine. Hi, Maureen. Hey, I really, it really helps me is my atmosphere in my home. So I bring the garden from outside inside. So I put a lot of tulips around my house, a lot of flowers and candles and just to make it look like you're in your garden. And it really helps me. Well, nature does that. Uh, You know, nature will certainly do that. And apparently so will this happiness jar. And I believe you're the fifth caller, Catherine. Wow. Yes. So you've won the happiness jar. We'll get that sent out to you. Oh my! Yeah. So if <laughs> you leave you, your, Maureen. you're very welcome. If you leave your um, address with Dwayne, um, he can forward it on to me, and um, Jen Smart can mail it this out to you. Okay. All right. Well, but well thank, thank you so you. much for your contribution. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so you've fulfilled a passion of yours, and and it's really around sharing happiness, not only finding it for yourself, but sharing it with others. Yeah, I wanted to find a really easy way um, to share this with people because of the fact that I know how much work I had to put into myself. Right. So um, I read a lot of books, and you know, people don't have time for it, or you know, they have so many things to do in their day. This can be incorporated in your day really easily. It's a bit of mindfulness. It's a bit of biofeedback. And I imagine companies might um, utilize this. This might be a great gift for employees. Happier at work. Happier workplaces. We certainly need that. Um, Happier homes. Happier storefronts. I mean, we need to spread this happiness all over the place. Yeah. Um, So how can people get a hold of their own happiness jar, Jen? Well, they can contact me at thehappinessjarlifestyle.com. Um, I'm also on social media, Instagram, Facebook. Okay, fantastic. Um, and if yeah. they want to get you to come into the company and speak about happiness and why it's so important. Yeah, I'll be doing that, getting that all set up within the, the next month or so. Perfect, because yeah. that's kind of that season yeah. leading into it. Well, wonderful. Well, Jen Smart, thank you so much for coming on and sharing happiness with me. Thank and you. Uh, and with the listeners, so yeah, yeah. So you've you've spread a little love, and Yay. I really appreciate. Thanks, that. everybody. <laughs> All right. Well, thank okay. you. Okay, coming up next, talk about social media. We've been talking about that, and do you think you would be viewed in a more favorable? favorable light if you put all these gorgeous photos of yourself that are totally fake online think again i'm maureen mcgrath this is the sunday night health show (laughs) stairway to heaven if you can't hear it because i can't (laughs) there we go we can hear it now Dwayne, on the boards all right maureen mcgrath here uh who hasn't had a heartbreak who has not broken up with somebody uh well, I'm delighted to have on the program with me Nancy Ruth Dean. She is a breakup coach. Good evening, Nancy. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Good. So first of all, what is a breakup coach? Ooh, um, well, people come to me for so many different reasons, but at the end of the day, people are coming to me because they want to find out, you know, are their thoughts correct about what went down during the breakup? What are they actually experiencing? How to make sense of feelings? So people are really coming for a gamut of reasons. 
And how do you help them navigate the breakup? And, and is it different for men? Because you see men and women, correct? Yeah, I actually see a lot more men than women, which is surprising when I tell people that. It even surprised me. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that I notice the most is, contrary to what we actually think, men are really wanting to approach a breakup in the healthiest way. I think we definitely have different ways of thinking, like, how does the opposite sex actually handle it? Um, So one of the things that I find is men are wanting to handle it in the healthiest way, whatever that means for them. Right. And if they have anxiety to begin with, uh, it might be more difficult for them. So you not only help them navigate the confusing stages of a breakup by reconnecting them with themselves, but um, they kind of bring up other things from the past, if I understand it correctly. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, again, like, everybody's coming for different reasons, but one of the big things is really wanting to connect with yourself, which means kind of looking at kind of the spirit of what's happening. So we're so caught up in figuring out like what happened, what were the events that happened, but what I try and do is take it just a little bit deeper so people can connect with themselves and look inward and see what's going on on their side of things. And guys have friends. They have great buddies. There's tons of bro clubs all over. Um, but it's hard to talk to your um, guy friends about feelings because I imagine that, you know, men might be made fun of if they if they try to express their feelings in the locker room. Yeah. I mean, in my experience, when my male clients are talking to me, they actually express that they have good relationships with their friends. And they can share, but it's kind of surfacey. Like they can go for drinks the entire night and not talk about their heartbreak, even though that's the biggest life event that they're going through. So it's funny when they talk to me, they're like, no, my friends are great and everything. And I'll say, okay, well, what are you guys really talking about? They're like, well, you know, just a couple things here and there. Meanwhile, like ladies, we're picking up the phone right away and having hour-long conversations with nine of our closest friends. Yes, we are. And, you know, we're up against the clock, Nancy. How can people get in touch with you? (laughs) Um, They can go to hellobreakup.com or reach out to me, nancy, at hellobreakup.com. And I'll definitely have you back. we got to delve deeper. I'm Maureen McGrath. Up next, Insomnia. This is the Sunday Night Hell Show. Anyway, uh, the other thing I want to talk about, too, is something else that we've, I feel we've been duped a little bit by this next subject. And Emily Lazatin, who is a, an award-winning journalist um, at Global and CKNW in Vancouver, uh, did an, a, an awesome investigation into vaping and the e-cigarettes. This was le- alleged to be something that was a way to quit smoking. It was meant to be a healthier version of smoking, um, yet people are dying of respiratory diseases. And Emily joins me on the line to talk a little bit about this. Hello, Emily. Hi, Maureen. Thanks. How are for, you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good, good. Good. I've heard a little bit of your phenomenal work on this um, last week. So uh, tell me, what are some of the salient things that you learned during your investigation about vaping and e-cigarettes? And I know there's a lot of parents out there concerned that their teenagers have picked this up. Um, in part, the kids are picking it up because of those flavored um, vapor, you know, vaping devices. And also, these um, yes. companies yes. got into schools as well and educated under the guise of you know quitting smoking, but then kind of pushed these products as well. So. Yeah, so this all started, and we've been talking about vaping for the last, oh God, six, seven months. It's been around for about 
it's been around for years. It's nothing new. But I think what's happening is we're all of a sudden in the last month or so hearing what's happening in the States. And I'm sure we're all following along with the hundreds of illnesses related to vaping. There's now um, my last count out two days ago was eight deaths in the United States. So we here, we're, we're global. We're just talking. Well, let's, you know, let's go and chat with people. And the first thing I did was um, let's talk to students because, you know, as you said, vaping is, you know, it's marketed as a way to, you know, curb your, your smoking habits, um, lower your nicotine dosage sort of thing. But teens are getting hooked on it. And these are teens who never smoked before. So what I did is I went out to um, New Westminster. I spoke to some people, um, kids between the ages of 14 and 16. And this is what they had to say. I thought it looked really cool. I didn't really know the thing I was hitting had nicotine in it. I think after a month, I started, you know, craving it. Maybe once a class, so once every hour and a half. There's like a store in downtown they sell to minors. We just walked in and asked for one, and they just gave it to us. My stamina would decrease. I'd do like water sports. I couldn't swim over a kilometer, like, without like getting tired. I tried to join track at the beginning of grade 10 and I just couldn't do it. My lungs were just too messed up. When you stop doing it, you actually feel like you need it. You don't realize how strong the addiction is. So those are all teenagers um, in New Westminster, some from Metro Vancouver. And uh, like, let's remember, Nick, uh, buying vapes or, and products related to are similar just to buying cigarettes. So you have to be 19 years old. So we heard right off the bat, um, these teenagers are you know, crossing boundaries into Vancouver. There's a well-known store. They didn't want to give you the name, of course, but uh, they all know about you know one or two stores that you walk right in, no questions asked. There's 40 bucks and you get a vape. Easy as that. You know, you know what I found interesting about that clip, Emily, was that, you know, people who smoke, you know, part of the reason they don't quit is they actually don't feel that bad. You know, and typically they don't get these respiratory related diseases until, you know, into their 50s and 60s and 70s, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, for example. Mm-hmm. These kids seem to feel pretty unwell pretty quickly. So again, that's what so that was surprising to me as well. Um, and I didn't expect for me, I didn't expect to hear that. You know, I was sitting there and I was interviewing these teenagers, just expecting. You know, they told me how they got into it, how you know they never had picked up a cigarette, they did it because of peer pressure, it was cool. And then all of a sudden, a couple of them who were athletes had said, "Hey, uh, I'm trying to quit, or I did quit because of, I know I'm, I'm a swimmer and I couldn't swim over a kilometer without being t- feeling too tired when usually I could do." you know, X amount, or I'm a runner, and I noticed that my lungs and my breathing were off. So very, very surprising. And the next clip I want to throw to is we talked to a couple of doctors, one from UBC and um, one from the BC Center for Disease Control. We don't know a lot about vaping. There's nothing definitive that's been linked to it. You know, we've heard from the states, it could be the THC that people are vaping, but as we'll have a listen here, um, there are still so many unknowns and there's still we're still in the early stages of research. I fear that it may be smoking 2.0. We're inhaling into our lungs chemicals that are, are not chemicals that the lungs typically see, many of which are known to be toxic. This is an industry that has historically shown very clearly to not be honest. Liquid isn't what it's marketed as in some cases. In some cases it's marketed as nicotine-free and there is nicotine present. Wow. So, yeah, interesting there. And I, and, and I want to bring it back to the students because that last clip that doctor had said, you know, some of it, the marketing, you know, is not reliable. And one of the kids had told me, and I didn't play the clip, but he had said, 
I thought I was smoking zero nicotine. You know, I was just doing it to be cool, to blow the, you know, the O's with the smoke and the ghosts. I, I just wanted to be cool with the kids. And then what he learned was he was later smoking something with nicotine and a month later, just like that. Wow. So, you know, you yeah. got to wonder, you uh, see... So it is becoming a problem. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh, no, you see people going, you know, driving or, you know, and just a massive puff of smoke comes out the window. You've got to wonder about that going into your lungs. Yeah, and, and I just, I, I'm, I think we're all waiting to hear, you know, what's going to come out of this because we just heard now there are three cases in Canada. Um, two, there's three. The first we heard was a teenager in London, Ontario. He was actually on life support because of it. He has thankfully since recovered. So again, we're just, we're in the early stages of research, but because this is such a problem with teenagers who have never smoked before, um, the school districts are talking about it. Uh, politicians are calling for regulation. So now um, uh, I talked to a couple, I, I talked to Surrey uh, Councillor Stephen Pettigrew, and this is what he had to say. We'd also like to see uh, perhaps a cap on the number of retail authorizations that are permitted, the same way that they're likely going to be limiting the number of cannabis shops that are in place as well. Those could be specific things like, like bans or buffer zones. Especially when where the youth can access them. There should be stricter regulations in place. So I think it's a conversation piece. I mean, again, vapes are regulated just like cigarettes. You have to be 19. You can go to a corner store, a gas station. But now we're hearing, you know, all along, we had we had talked about pot and how pot had to be regulated. But doctors are telling me, you know, there are at least benefits to pot. There are zero benefits unless you are trying to quit smoking. There are zero benefits to vaping. So now there's these calls from the BC Lung Association, uh, from BC Cancer to maybe regulate the vaping industry a little stricter. I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, I don't recall ever hearing, um, you know, when smoking began, but I, I don't think I was around when smoking began, but, um, or ever hearing the association of uh, people requiring ventilation, um, you know, as you say, life support, um, because, you know, one month or, you know, within a year after starting smoking cigarettes. So this is, this I think is a significant uh, clinical marker. Um, that we really need to pay attention to. And I think, you know, it, it is one of those uh, peer pressure things. And, and I know a lot of parents are very concerned about it. Absolutely. And the last story I actually did, um, we spoke to, uh, to curb students um, from doing this in school. Uh, we, you, uh, schools in the U.S. are now uh, installing vape detectors in their bathrooms. So I to- spoke to a couple of school districts in New Jersey, Ohio. They seem to be on board with it. I spoke with a few districts here. Uh, not yet. Uh, I think what they want to do is first get education and awareness and talk to the students. Uh, but going back to vape shops, the last clip that I want to play is that uh, if we do regulate the vaping industry, which is, you know, a far call, um, that it would hurt the business, and, and this is why, from a, pro- uh, from a vape shop. kind of makes sense. I mean, proximity to school kind of makes sense. I mean, when we were looking at retail spaces, one of the things we were mindful of is not being too close to high schools or community centers or things that would feel uncomfortable for people. Our intended audience for vape is and has always been adult smokers of traditional cigarettes. If they're making it harder for that target audience, then I have some concerns. It will kill the industry because people who use the product want it to taste good. It tastes better than a cigarette. That's part of the reason why people will pick it up and put down their cigarettes. Uh, so, yeah. Maury, lastly there, I mean, I think that um, uh, 
sorry, she wanted to just point out that you know other other vape shops might be ruining it for other people. I mean, her apparent her you know her intended audience is is adults, and um, people apparently just you know some people like flavored. Um, nicotine but at the end of the day uh students are catching on to this and like one of the doctors said it it might be smoking 2.0 absolutely and you know i don't think that you know a lot of adults like cherry flavor and bubblegum flavor and all those flavors that the vapes come in so i and also you know uh sending in representatives from the company uh veiled as smoking educators um i think i'm not sure that i believe that the intended audience is adults but emily lazatin thank you so much for the great work Thank you, Maureen. I appreciate that. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, breaking up is hard to do. I'm Maureen McGrath. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. This is the time of night that you tell me that you go to bed with me. So uh, I could think that's true. I, so many people I know, they're like, I go to bed with you every Sunday night <laughs> around 9.30. Anyway, so can't, you can't believe how many people I'm in bed with at this time on a Sunday night. Okay, I digress. Sleep is critical. Hence, the subject that we're talking about, insomnia. And my guest is Dr. Luke. P. Baudouin. He is an adjunct professor of cognitive science and education at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. He is an integrative design-oriented cognitive scientist who specializes in cognitive productivity, sleep onset, and insomnolence and emotions. He is author of two cognitive productivity books, working on a third book called Discontinuities, Love, Art, Mind. He's also the co-founder and director of CogSci Apps Core, CogZest, and the Somnolence and Initiative for Sleep Wellness. Dr. Baudouin invented the Cognitive Shuffle, My Sleep Button app, and the Hook Productivity app, all first of their kind based on his cognitive science. Dr. Baudouin has a PhD in cognitive science. He was a Commonwealth scholar and an at-founding employee of two of Canada's most successful high-tech Startups, thank you so much for joining me on the line, Dr. Baudouin. Uh, thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here. I introduced this. Nice, <laughs> nice to meet you online as well. Um, I introduced this segment this morning on the Jill Bennett Show, and I had a number of emails um, after okay. that little uh, intro. I'm really interested to hear about the sleep. I often have issues falling asleep, staying asleep. This happens nightly. This happens weekly. Um, so I'm very happy to have you on and interested to learn in particular about your app, My Sleep Button, based on Cognitive Shuffle. But tell me how uh, critical is sleep and... What is the incidence of insomnia? Well, sleep is, is sleep is essential for all aspects of uh, human well-being. You know, from your your physical, your physical, biological health, your mental health. Air rates go up when we don't sleep. Our uh, our moods are affected. You know, we have accidents. We don't sleep enough. Uh, so it's basically all around super important. Uh, and a lot of people have an intuitive sense of that. Um, and in terms of insomnia, well, clinically, the clinical insomnia rate is. Anywhere between six and ten percent, um, and but uh, people ten to fifteen percent of the population report that sleep issues affect affect their their next their following day, and uh, you know about thirty percent of people have some sleep issues. So it's quite a it's a big concern. Um, it's, it's 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 important, you know. <laughs> it, it is a big concern, and and why aren't people sleeping? Well, you know, some of the reasons are the same as they've been for many years, and some are new, of course, with with, with technology. But um, I, I think one of the reasons is people don't 
<laughs> prioritize sleep enough, and we, we tend to try to um, uh, pack a lot into the day. And even for, for our kids, for instance, you know, if you put your kid in, in hockey and they're going to hockey before school, well, that shortens the day. Or even after school, there's not a lot of time left. So we're, pre- we're, we're overloading our schedules um, with all kinds of um, things to do. <laughs> and, you know? and how about substances like alcohol and caffeine? Caffeine puts okay. me to sleep, I have to say. I'm like an opposite sleeper. I sleep too much. <laughs> well, people tend to think that caffeine doesn't, or some people anyway, think that caffeine doesn't affect them. But if, they, if we put you in a sleep lab, we'll find it actually affects sleep quality. Okay. Um, and, and alcohol is the same thing. Um, alcohol, I mean, it might help you fall asleep, but then your, the quality of your sleep, if we put you in a sleep lab and measure you know, that your brain weighs, you'll find that in that case, too, your sleep is, is, uh, is affected. It's, it's not as good quality. It's fragmented, um, et cetera. And, and, and the half-life of caffeine, so the duration of caffeine in your blood, it, um, it, it increases as we age. So people who can handle it pretty well at 20 don't necessarily handle it as well, say, in their 40s and 50s. Interesting. Okay, so tell me about the cognitive shuffle. What is that all about? Okay, so there's many reasons why people can't sleep. And the cognitive shuffle is basically, it's a, it's a technique that I developed, a, a cognitive, meaning a mental technique, not a medication, uh, to help people fall asleep. And it's something that we do in bed, you know, so you're lying in bed, you've done everything that you think you need to do to get to sleep. And then, okay, your mind starts to wander, right? And you're thinking about problems or whatever. So the research shows that when people have insomnia or can't sleep, it's typically because they're, you know, they're processing their worries and they can't put them aside. They're so, saving the world in the middle of the night, yeah, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, uh, and it's not the best place to do it. And there's different things you can do. Like one of the techniques is to, you know, that is to actually just try to do your problem solving at the beginning of the evening, say after you get home from work, you know, okay, relax a bit and then spend, spend 20 minutes journaling, figuring out what your problems are and how you're going to deal with them. And then, and then that's it. Like, don't spend the whole night worrying about them or don't re- revive this at night. But, pe- but that's not always possible. Feasible, people have trouble with that. So I developed a cognitive shuffle, a different technique for helping people fall asleep because the alternatives in the literature, like in the psychology and insomnia literature, were um, not very compelling to me. Like there's a technique to get where you're supposed to focus on, a, on a, say, a candle or a cup in your head and imagine a candle or a cup for like two minutes. And I'm thinking, you know, if somebody's got uh, problems paying their mortgage, your kids aren't showing, going to school, things like that, it's hard to focus on that cup. So I developed a, a, a technique that was more engaging. But of course, I couldn't develop just straight on develop the technique without developing the theory. So actually the theory and the technique were developed kind of back and forth. So there's, it calls for a theory of, um, of falling asleep. So what the, te- what the cognitive shuffle does or it's meant to do anyways, is to put your mind in the drowsy state that it naturally falls into when you actually fall asleep. People don't know it, but when they fall asleep, they tend to have little micro dreams. So if you wake them up they'll, and ask them, hey, what, what were you thinking? They might say, well, I was having, actually, it's strange. I had this imagery, like a hallucination. <laughs> you know, you have these distant memories or whatever. So the technique actually gets people to think of diverse images you know, to imitate the mind, the imagery-rich mind-wandering that's characteristic of sleep onset. So, so and, and while you're doing that, it also keeps your mind off your concerns. So I, I've, I've kind of described what the technique does 
but I haven't really said how to do it. So do you want to hear how to do it? Yes, please. <laughs> so I, I gather it's uh, you let your imagination lull you to sleep. Is that um, kind of the theory behind this or how, how do you do it? Right. Yeah. So it, it's something like that. And when we're falling asleep, like our mind kind of goes a little bit crazy. We're not making sense anymore. Whereas the rest of the day, our, our brain is making sense of what's happening. So, so, so this, this technique actually is a little bit systematic and it, you either use an app or there's a, a kind of spelling technique to get you to think of one kind of random thing after another, right? So you might um, think of a, um, for instance, a banana, going for a walk, um, piano. <laughs> you might imagine, you're not just thinking, you're imagining these things, a piano, uh, a lake, etc. So what the app does is it, is it actually reads you these things that you can uh, then imagine. Okay. So because it's actually a little bit difficult to think of random things. And if, if we start making a story, then we're no longer out of, you know, the mode that's characteristic of falling asleep, you know? Right. Yeah. So that's very beneficial because that was the first thing that I was thinking is that because oftentimes with meditative practice, they suggest, you mm-hmm. know, pretend you're leaving the earth and you're flying into space. And what do you look like? It's like, I have no idea what I look like. You know, I look like a cartoon <laughs> character. Um, but so it's hard to. So the, the app does that for you. It actually gives you the scenes, if you will, or the things to think about. That, that's right. So, it, it, you know, there's pre-selected content that uh that it's read and there's a few different options and uh, and uh yeah that's basically what it does and is it uh, that it's to... i hate to say this and with all due respect for all sure. of your scientific work <laughs> uh-huh. is it that it's so boring it it lulls you to sleep is that how that does it or is it just how does it work scientifically well, is, you, know, you know what there this, this is uh this is we're in the realm of science and theory here so what it but it's not but it, i can tell you what what it's meant to do, right, is actually not not really to bore you, um, be, and that's kind of like, it's counterintuitive. You would think that um, if that um, that actively thinking about something should actually keep you awake. So we we're kind of debating this, and I was debating this today at the conference. Um, I was at the World Sleep Conference today. Um, it's that it, it actually, um, yeah, it gets your mind to 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 wander from one thing to to another. So it's actually not necessarily boring. No, no. You know, your dreams, your dreams are not necessarily boring. Right. And as you fall asleep, you have these little micro dreams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I could see that, and it takes you away from your problem. So if somebody is thinking about, um, oh my gosh, I have to make the lunches, and I have to pay the bills tomorrow, and I have to bring the dog yeah. to get yeah. surgery, and you know how am I going to do it? And I want to go for a walk and whatever. There, you know, and it gets it's stressful thinking of all that stuff. Right. That's right. That's right. So this, this scrambles your thinking because you don't really have time to get into the story part of it. So, I see. Uh, so the sleep onset dreams are kind of are, 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 are a bit random, um, whereas your, your middle of the night dreams, you have more kind of mental power actually interpreting what's going on. So it, it sounds like there's a story. I mean, there's a big there's debate about whether we're just inventing that story on top of what's really happening. But this basically taps into the just the imagery rich diversity part. And, yeah, it breaks up the story. You know, the kinds of stories that keep us awake are, um, you know, there's usually worry involved, but there's a story. So this actually does two things. It breaks up the story and it takes away the worrisome part. So if you're thinking about, let's say you get a thought about, oh, whatever, your kid's not going to school, right? That's mm-hmm. big. Well, now all of a sudden the, the app might say piano and you're imagining a piano. So it draws you back. So you don't, you don't need to rely on your own, as much on your own uh, kind of mental ability. to your, It's called metacognition to say, oh, no, I shouldn't be thinking about that. You get an interruption. 
right. beyond saying, oh, piano, what the heck? Okay, so I'm back. Yeah, that exactly. Be, you know, theoretically, particularly useful in the middle of the night, say, because what happens, people often, their, their insomnia shows up in the middle of the night. And, and what's going on there is that they, they don't have them, because their brain is actually partly asleep, they might think I'm wide awake. They're not really wide awake in the middle of the night. And, but what they've lost is what we call the executive function, the top-level functions of the brain, which is, which is capable of regulating their program that they're playing. So they're controlled by their, their, well, their emotions, their motives. They pop up, their concerns. You know, they pop up, and then they can't keep their mind off of them because their brain is actually, actually the fact that they're half asleep is interfering with them being able to fall asleep. That's kind of the cool paradox. Right. And this is for everybody, nurses, first responders and, and children as well, because a lot of kids these yep. days are having issues because they are on, as you say, on their devices. I have to say, I've fallen into a very bad habit of listening to podcasts uh, and, you know, I'm asleep within 10 minutes, <laughs> but well, I, you know, I'm going to try go this. Ahead, yeah. I'm going to try this instead. Yeah. It might give me yeah. a better sleep. Well, you know, I'm not, you know, the thing is, there's not a lot of research on what you just said, you know, podcasts, because a lot of people report falling asleep to the radio. Mm -hmm. So we can't really say that doesn't work. You know, if it's working for you, then, then why, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It was what I personally would say. But yes, kids are interacting with technology. And in that case, it's not necessarily insomnia, because insomnia is difficulty falling asleep if that's what you want. But what's where people are often experiencing pressure is that, you know, they're not turning off their gadget. Well, that's right. not insomnia anymore. That's, that's actually deciding, implicitly deciding, I'm not going to get enough sleep. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that is a great point. I, I'd love to have you back because there's so much. And, and you know, in our discussions uh, prior to this interview, we, we, a lot of our, the, our areas of interest um, overlap. Um, yes. And so I'd love yes. to talk to you further about insomnia and sleep issues, what you can do, grief, uh, romantic grief, all of those other things that you study. So I really appreciate it. Where can people get the, the sleep app button? Okay, so, so my sleep button is available on... Um, on mysleepbutt.com. And that's, uh, I'm a, so I'm a director of the company that makes that. You've mentioned it already. And, uh, and I blog at cogzez.com on all things, basically, uh, <laughs> all things related to my work. Excellent. Mysleepbutton.com. Dr. Luke Baudouin, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time this evening. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.